0: This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Paul Faye. He has a bio that's too long to read, but we're going to get most of the way through it here. He's a a retreat leader and a writer, co-founder of Where Peter Is, great website, wherepeteris.com. He's the founder and co-host of Pope Francis Generation podcast over at popefrancisgeneration.com and a co-founder of Practical Kerygma, which we're going to talk about here later in the show. For the past eight years, he's worked as a professional catechist and is currently working towards a master's degree in mental health counseling. His long-term goal is to provide pastoral counseling for Catholics who have been spiritually abused His current project is an upcoming workshop on uh, Desiderio, Desideravi, as well as some other uh, workshops coming up on other papal documents. Uh, We look forward to having this conversation. Paul, thanks for being here on the show again today. Thank you, TL. So uh, one of the things that I'm just intrigued about with this upcoming workshop coming up in April, mid-April, is the idea of... Reading these papal documents, first of all, actually reading the document and not just commentary about the document, or not just someone's um, hot take on the document, but actually reading what what the church is handing down to us through these apostolic exhortations and papal encyclicals and more. Uh, but then also reading it in community and in conversation, uh, because you've read your fair share of papal documents as have I, and uh, sometimes their meaning is nuanced and you get lost in the run on sentences and you might miss something that that is rich, but, uh, but hidden. And so uh, I'm intrigued by this idea of, of reading it together in, in community with commentary. Uh, What drove you to say, Hey, I'm going to go through the effort of not only reading through this document, but creating a curriculum and then creating an opportunity for people to engage with it.
1: Yeah. So for, almost eight years, I worked uh, as uh, a parish, a director of religious ed. I was a catechist. I worked with students. I worked with adults. And, um, you know, the papal doc or the church document I primarily worked with was the catechism. But as much as I could, I would bring in other, other documents. And um, it's in the group discussion where what the church teaches really in in my experience, really comes to life. It's where people are able to to wrestle with it, question it, um, and you have someone there, you know, the catechist who is able to help give background and and explanation. But um, catechesis is not it's it's not supposed to be simply an intellectual thing. It's supposed to be an interpersonal and a relational um, thing. It's not just about absorbing content. It's about I mean, primarily, John Paul II talks about in Catechesi Triton Day, the role of the catechist is to help bring people into an encounter and into relationship with Jesus Christ. And that happens in the context of a personal relationship. So, um, I mean, it's great for individuals. I always encourage people to to read the church's documents and pray with the church's documents on their own. But I think even better than that is be able to do it in relationship with other people.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and I love you're calling out the point of this is not just about information. This is not just intellectual formation, but we are allowing ourselves to be formed in community and to be formed spiritually and, and pastorally and as humans, just as much as we're being formed in our intellect.
1: Uh, yeah, the, I mean, we believe as Catholics that the Holy spirit, uh, assists and guides and, and, and protects, um, the pope and the bishops uh when they teach in communion with the pope um and you know the holy spirit is uh the third person of the holy trinity uh the holy spirit is a person um so this is not simply like yeah this is not a school subject that we learn it's um the church's teaching is always um is always personal and always relational
0: one of the things that that you mentioned there is that uh, as a part of this course, or really as we approach these documents in community, that we really have the opportunity to wrestle with the teachings that are presented in in the church. And it seems like very often, maybe in our own parishes, people may be reticent to express their wrestling in communion, in community. Because if I express something that I'm having difficulty with, it gets treated like I'm intellectually wrong, going back to that idea of it just being intellectual information. Oh, I have the wrong answer, therefore. And it doesn't ever get into really allowing me to wrestle with and flesh out how I understand and how I appropriate the things that the church teaches. And in your class description here for the upcoming workshop, you say that it provides a non-judgmental space that proclaims and invites, but never imposes. So the question here is, can you give us a picture of what that looks like not only in the context of your class, but in the context of our responsibility to our fellow Catholics and our fellow seekers in our own contexts.
1: He, yeah. So, um, and Pope, so Pope Francis at the beginning of the year of St. Joseph, a couple of years ago, he wrote an amazing letter uh, about St. Joseph. And, uh, in that, in that document, he talks about, uh, Joseph as the most chaste father. Um, and I promise this is relevant, but, uh, he defines chastity as uh, love that is free from possessiveness, and then he says, uh, "God Himself loves humanity with a most chaste love, because um, His love always respects our freedom." That is God's disposition towards us. Like God always proposes and never imposes; He always invites and He never coerces. Um, and the Church and th- those of us who are who make up the Church need to model that type of chaste love in our interactions with others, in that um, if we really believe that the gospel and the church's teachings are good news, and they are good news, and they are life-changing good news, we should not feel like we need to like coerce people or manipulate people in any way into believing them. We propose them with our hearts and with our lives, and we believe that if it's good as we believe that it is that it will attract people and 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 people's hearts will be moved i mean that's been my experience in 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 preaching retreats and in catechesis where you share the charisma, you share the gospel with people and it's almost like the holy i'm not saying that my words are sacramental but when you when you share that with people it's almost like grace comes with that and in their in the hearing of the good news people's hearts are moved um so, yeah, uh, there has to be a space created within the church, and especially within catechesis, where people can come as they are, with their questions, with their doubts, with their concerns, um, totally vulnerable, um, or at least with some vulnerability, and where they can be accepted as they are in that place, without judgment, and to be able to be in dialogue with their questions. Um, So I taught RCIA for many years and I would tell people, especially the candidates going through, be like, Hey, uh, at the end of this, you know, during Easter, you're going to get up in in front of everyone in the church and you're going to make a promise. Uh, you're going to say that you believe everything the church teaches. And I want you to be able to say that without crossing your fingers behind your back. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm like, now I, what I don't expect what the church doesn't expect is, is perfection here. And it certainly doesn't expect that you're gonna like um, believe everything the church teaches for the rest of your life. Like you're gonna come across teachings almost assuredly that you're not gonna like either now or in the future. Mm-hmm. And what the church is inviting you into is not like blind obedience, but a a disposition towards the church where um, you feel comfortable bringing your questions and concerns to the church. And you come with an openness and a docility um, to hear what the church has to say. Um, uh, I was reading recently a really wonderful book by uh, uh, Eve Tushnet called uh, called Tenderness, and it was uh, about pastoral care towards um, uh, our gay brothers and sisters in the church. And, and she admits in the introduction of the book, she's like, you know, some of the ch- church's sexual teachings I don't find compelling. She's like, but I find the church compelling. So um, if we, even though, even if I don't agree with or really wrestle with these particular teachings, I'm obedient to the church because I trust the church and who she is and who her authority is. And that's the type of disposition that um, the people are invited to have, not uh, blind adherence um, to all the teachings or even like you had mentioned, um, having to put up a front as if they have obedience to all the teachings instead mm-hmm. of being able to really wrestle with what's important to them.
0: Well, I was recently surprised to realize, as my own children went through the, the sacrament of confirmation, that that promise that we make as converts—that we uh, believe and profess all that the Holy Catholic Church believes, teaches, and proclaims to be revealed by God—that's um, not something that that cradle Catholics go through, as they are. That's not a promise that they make at their confirmation. It's one that we who are entering by profession of faith that we make. Uh, and so I've begun to take the disposition that that I am a a late stage cradle Catholic, right? I came in a little late. I have a deep love for the church, and i I can certainly say I believe and profess. Uh, but it it takes on a, a very different character with me today than it did when I came in because I think when I came in I I was understanding that phrase very much in the intellectual formation kind of a way that we talked about earlier, and less in the familial. I am now a part of this family kind of a way, mm-hmm. that that there is just it's not any less true or any more true than it was then, but it is a deeper true than I could understand at that time.
1: Uh, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and. The deeper way is based on trust um and and ultimately I think that's that that's what I really loved about uh what Eve Eve Tushin had shared was her faith was rooted in tr- trust of the church which is ultimately trust in who God is um and oh and what God has revealed about himself and about the church and and that's what our faith is in um our faith is in not in having all the right answers to all of our questions or even always having satisfying answers to all of our questions our faith is in a person in 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 the, in the person of jesus christ and in his love and his goodness it is relational and it is it is familial
0: this is going in a different direction than i anticipated when we first started here but i i've known so many converts who came into the faith intellectually and said, I believe because they finally found a place where their beliefs matched a a specific uh, faith tradition. So now that I've found this home because of the the Pope that they came under, under, whether John Paul II or uh, Pope Benedict XVI, I found this place where my intellectual understanding of the faith uh, feels at home. The minute that, that, changed the minute that they that Pope Francis came on the scene and they began to have qualms and and not perfect understanding of what was trying to be taught at that time many of them faltered in their faith overall because it wasn't built on that that trust of the family of of the church it was built on some construct of of an intellectual tradition that they had crafted for themselves and i think that it's important that Yes, there is objective truth. Yes, there are uh, unchangeable doctrines. But we were given the promise that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church and we were given this living magisterium uh, as as a means of providing us safety and not so that so that we didn't have to be the gatekeepers and the watchmen on the walls against our own church.
1: Um yes, and I think that there's I think that there's always a temptation. Um, and this is something that 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 Pope Francis has has written about in. Um, but also this is something that Pope Benedict has 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 talked about as well, and Pope Benedict has talked about, like, um, he has said, we do not possess the truth. The truth possesses us, because the truth is is God. The truth is the you know, Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um <laughs> The truth is a person. So the truth is alive. Um, it's not a static set of propositions. Um, Mm -hmm. before he was Pope, um, Pope Francis, this was back in the nineties. Uh, he had an image where he's like, he's like, we are like playing in the tide pools of, of, of the truth of who God is. And he's the ocean. Um, so much beyond what, (laughs) uh, would we have been able to articulate? Um, so yeah, there has to be this sense of, okay, it's easy to fall back on these propositions that, that I have, that I've grown to love and that have really brought me life and fruit. But, but if I'm not willing to grow and to walk alongside the Holy spirit, who's continuing to, uh, develop and unfold, uh, the revelation of God in and through the church, um, our faith can become uh, an ideology. And that's something that that Francis has, has warned us against. Um, And I think that that's, I think that's a very present temptation um, uh, for me. And I think for a lot of people, because it's the comfort of surety and the comfort of, uh, of, of having answers. um, Whereas I think what, What God is asking us into is to enter into tension and enter into mystery and sometimes lack of surety, and that's Mm -hmm. often uncomfortable and difficult.
0: And we in in Catholicism are in the religion of the both-and. We live in paradox, and what we find throughout history is that whenever you try to simplify that paradox, that's when the heresy arises. Heresy always comes from the simplification of mystery. Uh, so you either try to make God too human or make God too divine because you're uncomfortable with the both and, or you try to uh, enter into, um, you know, you're worried about laxity, and so you you swing to the other direction and you become too rigorous and you miss the mercy and and the 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 vitality of the faith, uh, and so there there is something to to be said for living in that tension. Because when we are in that tension, we have to be dependent on God. We can't depend on our own intellect because it can't make sense of that tension. Now, it doesn't take much time or much opportunity reading the documents of the church to find that tension. And so um, I'm curious. You've got this this workshop coming up on Desiderio Desideravi. My, My curiosity is this. There are so many documents that are out there. So many that are uh, even controversial or misunderstood or uh, have people kind of pointing and wagging fingers at them. What was it about this document that you said I want to start here and then we'll go to these others. Then we're going to to then we're going to later in the year to Gaudate uh Ed Exalte, uh, to Fratelli 2D. Why start here?
1: Yeah, for a couple of reasons. Um first is it's um uh, I mean, he's he, Francis is always coming out with uh, catecheses and, excer- and um, speeches and things like that, and even some like moda proprios. But this is his most recent teaching document. It's just from last summer. Um, so it's nice to start with the most recent thing. But also it fits in with what the U.S. bishops are doing and the Eucharistic revival um, uh, that's going on and that's culminating next year um, as well. So... Uh, It also fits with the the trajectory of the church since Vatican II. So so Vatican II opened, and the first document it came out with was Sacrosanct of Concilium on the sacred liturgy. And in that document, it says that the aim to be considered above all else—so that should clue us in, like, this is important—the aim to be considered Mm -hmm. above all else is to foster greater participation in the the liturgy from all of the faithful and— that is what uh this document desiderio desiderave is trying to do it's it's about the liturgy but it's specifically about uh specifically about liturgical formation or liturgical catechesis so it's the pope who is saying hey the liturgy is important and the liturgy is important precisely because um and he has this beautiful passage in there where he's like um christianity is faith and in it is rooted in an encounter and a relationship with the living Christ. If it's not that, then it's not Christianity. But how do we have access to mm-hmm. the living Jesus? Um, how are How is the Paschal Mystery, how is Christ's life, death, and resurrection not simply story or historical events? How do we have access to that? It's precisely through the liturgy, the Pope says. It's precisely through the Mass that we are able—he talks about how we are able to sit at the Last Supper— with Jesus, to speak with him, to hear his voice, to drink his blood, and to, and to eat his body. It's through the Mass that we're able to do this. So it's through the Mass we're able to encounter Christ. It's through the Mass we're able to be healed. And ultimately, it's through the Mass that we're able to be transformed into another Christ. That is the purpose of the Mass. It's the purpose of the liturgy and the sacraments. Um, so, the, so the Pope is like, okay, it's that important how are we not able to participate in that? What's blocking us? So then he talks about the importance of being able to understand symbols and symbolic language. He talks about the importance of uh, of the celebrant and how, um, how how the celebrant owes the faithful, a liturgy that's faithful to the documents of the church, and owes the faithful a liturgy that expresses the love of God for all his people. Um yeah so the this document I think is really important because it's really important. the church has deemed it really important right now and for the past sixty years for people to be able to participate more fully in the mass and Francis is just continuing that um that focus
0: now early on in this conversation with Paul Faye, we talked about uh the fact that a lot of times we get our, all of our information about a papal documents from what the media says about it. We, the, the document comes out within a few hours, we've got commentary on it, kind of the rebuttal, uh, whether it be from, from religious news or from secular news, pointing out a controversy because the media thrives on controversy Uh, clicks, clicks uh, mean listenership, mean viewership. And so you, you do what you can to drive that. Um, so talk a little bit, well, first of all, I, I love the fact that you are engaging people in this upcoming workshop coming up at, uh, mid-April. I love that you're engaging people in the document itself, but let's talk about the controversy that's surrounding that. And just to remind that this is not, this is not a, a workshop just for a specific point of view. This is a workshop whether you view this document favorably or whether you're skeptical of this document because – this is a place to wrestle with it and to have conversation around it. And and it's the perfect place for diverging opinions. Um, But talk a little bit about that controversy and how that fits into the broader context of the document.
1: Yeah. So the controversy is really rooted in the historical context of this document, which most recently, so this document came out last summer, the summer before that Pope Francis promulgated um, a motu proprio called a Traditiotis Custodis, or the guardians of the tradition. Um, and in that document, um, he he essentially revoked Sumorum Pontificum, which was a motu proprio from Pope Benedict. Um, and there's a historical context to all of this. So after after Vatican II, um, reform of the liturgy was extremely important uh, to the church, like we had talked about. So Paul VI, um, a few years after the council, Approved the Novus Ordo, the new liturgy, which is now the ordinary um, uh, Roman rite. Um, and other than some rare exceptions, Pope Paul VI's intention was was it to, to sunset to really abrogate the the old liturgy. Um, but there were there was a a breakaway group, primarily um, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre, um, and he had a group of people who eventually became the SSPX, the, the Society. Uh, of St. St. Pius X. So after Paul VI, um, John Paul II created like pastoral exceptions for people who um, uh, preferred uh, the, the old liturgy um, and eventually created the FSSP, um, which I think is the Fraternity of St. Saint, Saint Paul. I'm not sure what that stands for, but it was essentially a home that's in union with the Pope, a home in communion with the Church, for people who had a devotion to the old liturgy. So um, so John Paul II gave pastoral uh, exceptions for the old liturgy, and Pope Benedict picked that up, um, and then even opened up the old liturgy to the church even more. And in 2007, he issued Summorum Pontificum, which allowed um, any priest to celebrate the old rite. And what Pope Benedict talked about, what he hoped for, was that There would be cross-pollination between the old liturgy and the new liturgy, and and that there would um, be—that it would help the new liturgy—having the old liturgy present in the church would help the new liturgy develop and maybe become um, uh, more reverent. Um, And it was kind of an experiment. And after surveying the bishops of the world, Pope Francis determined that that experiment wasn't working, that a lot of the— a lot of the communities that were built around the old Mass, the traditional Mass, the pre-Vatican II Mass, um, had, of, had a lot of political and ideological bent and, and had a lot of disdain for the Council attached to their devotion to that liturgy. And Francis said there were a lot of bishops in the world who were concerned about that. So Francis promulgated um, his motu proprio last summer that essentially reversed Pope Benedict's decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of controversy around this. Um, these communities with devotion to the old liturgy are a very, very small percentage of Catholics around the world, but they are a pretty high percentage. I mean, uh, I think the U.S. has a very large disproportionate number of traditional Catholics. Um, and I, I mean, there's a lot of controversy and I think there's some, I think there's some fair critique that, that Pope Francis, who talks a lot about accompaniment, um, didn't do a lot of accompanying for mm-hmm. traditional Catholics. I think there's some merit to that position. I think there's a lot of real hurt that people are experiencing because of that. But at the end of the day, that was that was the decision that the Pope made, and that's where the Church is going. And it certainly looks like to me that the old the old Mass is being pretty quickly sunset by. By Pope Francis, and the Church is just moving forward wholeheartedly with the Reformed liturgy um, of the Council. So th- this document Desiderio Desiderave was. Um, it came a year after the Pope's motu proprio, and it was and it gave some of the theological background as to why the Reformed liturgy is so important. And it explains a little bit more some of Francis's concerns about how the old liturgy was tied to ideology and a disdain for the council. So this past summer, when 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 Desiderio Desiravi came out, a lot of the media focus was on that particular point, even though that particular point mm-hmm. made up one paragraph of the entire document.
0: We need to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I want to look at that one paragraph and look at it in kind of context of what else is being said in this apostolic exhortation. We're talking today with Paul Fay about an upcoming workshop that he's doing on this apostolic exhortation, Desiderio Desideravi, on the the liturgy and the beauty of that liturgy. You can learn more about this workshop at PopeFrancisGeneration.com. But come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. Maybe there's a paper document that's stood out to you. Uh, Tell us about it. And don't go anywhere because there's much more to come right after this break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Paul Fay. Uh, he's got a new workshop coming up in April uh, on uh, the papal document, uh, Desiderio Desideravi. You can find out more about that over at his website, PopeFrancisGeneration.com, where he is the co host of a podcast that you can listen to more in depth. But while you're there, Find this workshop uh, and read the document. The, this beautiful document of Pope Francis on the Eucharist, on the liturgy. Uh, you can read it in community with a trusted guide uh, to help you understand some of the nuances and some of the uh, the maybe the the conflict that that gets dusted up around it, so that you can understand it in the context that the Church is giving it to us. Paul, one of the things that I uh, I've noticed about the way that we interpret Pope Francis here in the United States is something gets brought up as troublesome or problematic regardless of what the document is or what he says. Uh, And the automatic assumption is that he is saying that directed at me or directed at my community or my, my church. Uh, And, and maybe this is just the, uh, the Western centric idea that we are the center of the church but we are in a universal church. That's what Catholic means, right? We we are part of a community of faith that spans the entire globe. And sometimes, to to uh, to call to mind a Carly Simon song, sometimes it's not about us, right? Uh, even though we think the song is about us, it's not always about us. And we have to understand the things that are being put in these documents as as if they are being written to the whole church everywhere and always. And if it strikes a nerve or makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable, maybe that's the Holy Spirit kind of pinging our conscience saying, maybe this thing that's making us uncomfortable is something we need to pay a little bit more attention to, or maybe we need to get a more global view of the church. So let's revisit, because you said you gave us a little bit of historical context uh, for for your perspective of, of why this paragraph got such a dust up. But we never got to the paragraph. In the document that caused such the controversy, so I do want to at this moment let's go back to the document. We all, when it first came out, we heard uh, all of the things that were uh, newsworthy according to the people who were making the news. Uh, but I have to be honest with you. I remember that there was a paragraph. I remember there was a dust up. I do not remember uh, what everyone was was uh, clutching their pearls about. Uh, hypo, uh, uh, hypothetically. So would would you take us to this this specific passage of the document that everyone was maybe a little bit worried about, and then kind of place it in the context of what else is being said in this document?
1: Yeah, so it is paragraph 31, um, and, and the Pope is talking about the tension in the church between the old liturgy and the current, the, the reformed liturgy. And um I, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but to summarize, the Pope says that the problem uh is primarily and essentially in an ecclesial problem has to do with the nature of church and authority and not necessarily even a liturgical problem. He says that um he says, he says that what he sees with um the 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 desire and the the adherence of, uh, that's centered around the old liturgy is a questioning of the, of the validity of the Second Vatican Council. And he's like, that's a, that's a, a very serious problem. We can't mm-hmm. have a questioning of the legitimacy of the Second Vatican Council. And um, that, that's where he focuses his criticism of uh, this traditionalist tendency towards the old liturgy is that it's a it's a rejection of papal authority, it's a rejection of whether it's his authority or Paul VI's authority, that it's a rejection of sacrosanctum concilium from the Second Vatican Council, um, or it's a rejection of the entire council itself. Um, and this argument's been going on really since Vatican II. Uh, a couple of years ago, Word on Fire published a really amazing um, letter that Pope Paul VI had written to Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, uh, who's who started the SSPX and broke away from the church, um, talking about the exact same thing. Where he's like, "Hey, Paul VI is like you can't, <laughs> you can't be publicly denying the legitimacy of Vatican II and the legitimacy of papal authority. Like that's undermining the unity of the church, uh, and that really seems to be what Francis's concern is here. Um, so, uh, this paragraph in this document, Desidero Desiderave." Um, kind of feels like a step out of the document. The rest of the documents are really catechetical, really focused on this is the nature of the liturgy. This is the theology of the the liturgy. Um, And it really feels like he has to step out of that uh, to say, okay, um, we just need to get along with the Reformed liturgy because this is what the council wanted us to do. And the problem does not have to do with liturgical preference. He's He's like, you can find everything that was in the old liturgy that was important and essential you can find that in the new liturgy um that that the controversy here is a is a uh, has to do with the authority of the church
0: mm-hmm. well and i would even go so far as i have attended the traditional mass a few times um i i honestly uh, i prefer even a latin spoken ordo. Just maybe it's because it's familiar to me. Maybe it's because uh, it's what I came into the church with, but the ability to, uh, to participate, I find it much easier for me to participate even in a Latin novice order than I do the other. Now this, that's my personal, that's my personal uh, expression, but to point out that you can still attend, uh, a mass of stylistic preference—it's just in a Novus Ordo, and of course there are still opportunities for the traditional mass that are ongoing. Um, but there is the sense of we we get caught up on on one specific point of a preference without recognizing that even within the Novus Ordo there is a, an immense diversity of liturgical expression. As you're reading this document. Um, on the Eucharist. we Of course, you've read the other liturgical documents that are out there. You've read Sacrosanctum Concilium, You've read Musicum Sacrum, all of these things that speak to the way that we do liturgy. What stood out to you as unique or a fresh framing or a new uh, catechesis on liturgy that you did not find in those previous documents?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I would say that there's anything especially— New in this document that I didn't find elsewhere. what I liked about this one was the emphasis that Pope Francis had on God's desire for us. So I mean that's that's the the, the title of the document um, it, it it comes from Luke 22 and it comes from uh, in English the passages where Jesus says, "I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer." And then Francis says this, this is a quote from the second paragraph. These words of Jesus with which the account of the Last Supper opens are the crevice through which we are given the surprising possibility of intuiting the depth of the love of the persons of the Most Holy Trinity for us. He frames the Mass throughout the entire document as uh, the encounter, our encounter of God's desire for us. He's like, from the beginning of history, God had the Last Supper in mind. Um, like he says that, and then he also says that um, everyone is called to and welcome to and invited to participate in this Last Supper through the liturgy. And if if someone's there, if whenever I'm at Mass, even if <clears throat> I'm tired, even if I'm distracted by my kids, even if I just like yell at my kids on the way to Mass and feel like crap now that I'm there. If I am at Mass, I am there, the Pope says, because God has first desired for me to be there. Um, So the thing that I loved about this document was the emphasis that the Pope put on the Mass is the place where we encounter and experience God's desire for us.
0: That's such a beautiful picture of it, because there is this this sense of i go to mass because it's my obligation i go to mass because um i have to pray the mass i go to mass because i have to you know it's the social thing to do or it's the thing that i have grown up doing uh, and even these the books that try to help us understand the beauty of the mass i think frame it often in the way of the depths of god that we can touch by being in the mass and understanding it right the but the idea that that the center point of this document is not what we can how we can touch God, but that God is desiring to be with us and that we're going we're going as a response to that invitation and not as the initiators of the act.
1: And not as the initiators at all. Francis says this is a quote from the document, that we may not even be aware of it, but every time we go to mass. The first reason is that we are drawn there by God's desire for us. Um, and the whole thing, um, it, it reminds me of, there's a, a beautiful passage in the catechism in the opening section on, in the section on prayer, one of the opening paragraphs. And it it uses the story of the woman at the well. And in kind of explaining that story, it talks about what prayer is. Um, and it says that, Uh, prayer is an encounter with God's thirst for us. And I love this word thirst that the catechism uses because thirst is such a, uh, it is such a material and bodily, uh, thing. Um, but it's also an overwhelming thing. Like if I'm hungry, I can power through being hungry for quite a long time. Um, but when I'm thirsty, like if I'm outside in the summer working and I'm thirsty, eventually it consumes, all of my thought until I get something to drink. And then when I get something to drink, even if it's just lukewarm water, it's like the best thing on the earth in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that the church, that's the language the church uses to describe God's desire for us, that he thirsts for us. Um, And then, so then mass becomes this place thinking about the mass this way, moves it from this place of obligation and this place of, um, uh, distraction or just kind of rote prayers to in the very first way that we can participate in the liturgy is no matter how we feel or how we are when we show up to just recognize I'm here because God desires and God thirsts for me to be here. And if that's the case, he has something for me uh, in this moment. um, And that I mean if if we're able to move our hearts in that place at the beginning or during any any liturgy how much more fruitful is that going to be for us
0: Well and just as you're talking I think of all of those who for one reason or another are unable to receive the Eucharist uh, and and so they they come to mass uh, maybe because they want to bring their children maybe because they just have this need to be in community but for for whatever reason they still feel like it is the place that they need to be. They come to Mass even though they're unable to receive communion for for one scenario or another. Uh, to put it in that framework now, uh, I think reshapes the 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 picture and maybe makes it even a more hopeful thing because I'm coming to Mass and maybe I can't go forward to receive communion, but I am still here because God desires me to be here and not for any sense of, of trying to fit in or propriety or anything else. But truly, even in this moment, God has something for me in the sense of spiritual communion because he desires that I'm here.
1: Yeah, and not to downplay the reception of communion. Obviously, that is... Certainly. um, Yeah, but that is only one aspect of our participation in, in, in the Mass. I mean, we can still participate in... Um, the sacrifice of the Mass, even if we don't receive communion. Um, and what that means is that when the bread and wine are brought to the altar, like these ordinary things, like that moment is um our opportunity to put ourselves on the altar, right? Like the priest says when he begins the Eucharistic liturgy, he says, May my sacrifice and yours be acceptable to God the Father. Like, what's my sacrifice in that moment? Um, I mean, I didn't I didn't buy the hosts that are used for that uh, for that liturgy. What's my sacrifice? My sacrifice is precisely my heart, um, and not in a trivial way, but in a, in a conscious way. God is inviting me to put on the altar everything that is weighing on me in that moment: my sin, my shame, my fear, my anxiety, the people and situations in my in my life that are weighing me down, and to put them on the altar. Because really, like, what am I going to do with those things, carrying on to them? The Lord's like, give them to me, put them on the altar. And when then I do that, what does the Lord give me? Well, he gives me his very self. He gives me all of him, his body, his blood, his soul, his divinity, his presence, his real presence is what he gives to me in return. So I give him my heart, and as messy and broken as that is, and he gives me himself in return, and the culmination of that is the reception of Holy Communion. Um, but even if all we can do is make a spiritual communion, um, it's not like the Lord's not going to bless that. Like that, we're still able to participate yeah. um, in that, in that sacrifice, in that exchange.
0: Mm-hmm. The, uh, the workshop is coming up beginning April 13th. It's a three-part workshop. You can learn more about it over at PopeFrancisGeneration.com, PopeFrancisGeneration.com. We've been talking with Paul Fay here. Paul, before we go, in addition to this workshop, you also have a parish retreat that I want to talk about real quickly uh, over at PracticalKerygma.com. That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A, PracticalKerygma.com. Share with us just a little bit about that retreat.
1: Yeah, so me and a ministry partner, we wrote... Um, and her and I have been leading retreats for for many years together. Her and I wrote a uh, a retreat that's that's for Catholics primarily at parishes. Um, that is, it's divided into four sections. It's a walk through the first three is a walk through salvation history, the Old Testament, and then Gospels in the New Testament, and then the fourth session culminates in walking through uh, the Mass and how the story of salvation that we just heard through Scripture. How do we, just as Pope Francis says, how do we now encounter that in a personal way in our participation in the liturgy? Um, So the whole thing is uh, to hear about God's goodness and his love for us, and then to be able to participate and encounter that more fully in the liturgy. Um, So it's called uh, Destined Retreat. Um, And uh, I, I just, her and I just led it for the first time a couple of weeks ago in a parish in Iowa. And it was, it was beautiful and phenomenal, and it's perfect for um, this moment in the U.S. Church when we are focused on this Eucharistic revival, and in this moment in the universal church where the Pope is calling us to um, pay attention to the liturgy a little bit more. All right.
0: Again, we've been talking with Paul Faye. You can find more of his work over at PopeFrancisGeneration.com and PracticalKerygma.com. Paul, thanks for being with us today.
1: T.L., to thanks so much.
0: If you missed any part of my conversation with Paul Faye or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. There you can listen to this episode, but we've also had Paul on a couple of other times. You can just click the guest list there in the menu of the webpage. Scroll down to his name and there you can find this week's episode as well as the other times that he's been in conversation with us. And if you can't get enough, well, I've got good news. There is more. Each and every week we make available an extra segment that doesn't make the broadcast. We make that available to all those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air and in gratitude, we make that extra segment for them each and every week, but we also make it available to the general public after about six months. So I'd love to invite you over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and look through some of those extra segments and see what other things we have available there. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from Church History. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the fathers and doctors of the church, uh, catechism, biblical commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more at verbum.com. Our reading today from Scripture comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, consequently These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And I offer it here without much commentary other than to point our attention again to that last phrase. And by that will, here I am, I've come to do your will. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is what we do in the Mass. This is what we focus on, this Paschal mystery. And it's the very thing that Pope Francis turns our attention to In this this apostolic exhortation we've been talking about all day, uh, Desiderio, Desideravi, we're going to read a section of that specifically as it pertains to our marveling, our uh, meditating on, setting our gaze on that Paschal mystery and how we fully participate in the liturgy. And we read this. But we must be careful. For the antidote of the liturgy to be effective, we are required every day to rediscover the beauty of the truth of the Christian celebration. I refer once again to the theological sense, as number seven of Sacrosanctum Concilium so beautifully describes it. The liturgy is the priesthood of Christ, revealed to us and given in his paschal mystery, rendered present and active By means of signs addressed to the senses, water, oil, bread, wine, gestures, words, so that the Spirit, plunging us into the paschal mystery, might transform every dimension of our life, conforming us more and more to Christ. The continual rediscovery of the beauty of the liturgy is not the search for a ritual aesthetic, which is content only by a careful exterior observance of a rite or is satisfied by a scrupulous observance of the rubrics. Obviously, what I am saying here does not wish in any way to approve the opposite attitude, which confuses simplicity with a careless banality, or what is essential with an ignorant superficiality, or the concreteness of ritual action with an exasperating practical functionalism. Let us be clear here. Every aspect of the celebration must be carefully tended to—space, time, gestures, words, objects, vestments, song, music, and every rubric must be observed. Such attention would be enough to prevent robbing from the assembly what, it, what is owed to it, namely, the Paschal mystery celebrated according to the ritual that the church sets down. But even if the quality and the proper action of the celebration were guaranteed, that would not be enough to make our participation full. If there were lacking our astonishment at the fact that the Paschal mystery is rendered present in the concreteness of sacramental signs, we would truly risk being impermeable to the ocean of grace that floods every celebration. Efforts to favor a greater quality to the celebration, even if praiseworthy, are not enough. Nor is the call for a greater interiority. Interiority can run the risk of reducing itself to an empty subjectivity if it is not taken on board the revelation of the Christian mystery. The encounter with God is not the fruit of an individual interior searching for Him, but it is an event. Given, we can encounter God through the new fact of the Incarnation that reaches in the Last Supper the extreme point of His desiring to be eaten by us. How can the misfortune of distancing ourselves from the allure of the beauty of this gift happen to us? When I speak of astonishment at the Paschal Mystery, I do not at all intend to refer to to what at times seems to me to be meant by the vague expression, sense of mystery. Sometimes this is among the presumed chief accusations against the liturgical reform. It is said that the sense of mystery has been removed from the celebration. The astonishment or wonder of which I speak is not some sort of being overcome in the face of an obscure reality or a mysterious rite. It is on the contrary, marveling at the fact that the salvific plan of God has been revealed in the paschal deed of Jesus. And the power of this paschal deed continues to reach us in the celebration of the mysteries of the sacraments. It is still true that the fullness of revelation has, in respect to our human finitude, an abundance that transcends us and will find its fulfillment at the end of time when the Lord will return. But if the astonishment is of the right kind, then there is no risk that the otherness of God's presence will not be perceived, even within the closeness that the Incarnation intends. If the reform has eliminated that vague sense of mystery, then more than a cause for accusations, it is to its credit. Beauty, just like truth, always engenders wonder. And when these are referred to the mystery of God, they lead to adoration. Wonder is an essential part of the liturgical act because it is the way that those who know they are engaged in the particularity of symbolic gestures look at things. It is the marveling of those who experience the power of symbol, which does not consist in referring to some abstract concept, but rather in containing and expressing in its very concreteness, what it signifies. That reading comes from the apostolic exhortation, Desiderio Desideravi from Pope Francis. There's a, If you want to read more, obviously these are always free uh, at the Vatican website, vatican.va, but there's also this upcoming um, workshop starting in April with Paul Fay that you can go through and read this in community and with a trusted guide. And I encourage you this week as you go to Mass, take that, that nugget, that, that picture that Christ is present and wonder at it. Spend some time and wonder at it because there in that wonder is where we find our full participation, full and active participation in the Mass. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show was brought to you by Kerry Carlson and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more. Be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And give you peace.
1: This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.